This episode may contain content, but is not appropriate for all audiences. Specifically, if you are a survivor, what you are about to hear could be triggering. If you need help finding a doctor, please visit psychologytoday.com slash US slash therapists. If you are a survivor of clergy abuse in Maryland, we ask that you contact Rich Wolf, the Attorney General Justice Department Investigator at rwolf at oag.state.md.us or you can call him at 410-576-7290. We believe in no survivor left behind. So if you would like your voice to be heard, please reach out. Please take note of this number, 800-656-HOPE. If you or anyone you know needs help with any kind of sexual assault, please reach out to RAIN. RAIN is the National Sexual Assault Telephone Hotline, and again, their number is 800-656-HOPE. SNAP is the survivor's network of those abused by priests. More information can be found at snapnetwork.org or on our website at shadowspod.com. everyone to another episode of out of the shadows today Gemma and i we are joined by mike and mike can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background sure i'm uh um my name's mike and uh i work for the federal government in the behavior detection department i'm not going to say what agency i work at because it's a rather large agency and i just rather not mention it but i've been with them since 2008 i've been doing it for quite some time it's really interesting and we'll We'll talk a lot about what we saw in the keepers and uh, a, whole, a whole a lot of good stuff. I grew up in Boston by an Irish family, Catholic. Went to the Catholic elementary schools, went to the Catholic high schools. My dad, he worked two jobs, hardworking guy, blue collar, and my mom did as well. And it was very important back then to go to the Catholic schools. It was expected of you, especially if you were from an Irish family. You know, my dad would drill it into us. You are going to go to this Catholic school and you are going to do well. And if we didn't do well, well, then we, you know, got the, the repercussions of the leather strap. I was uh, kind of a kind of a quiet kid growing up in the Catholic school. And I was also left-handed. I was, uh, let's just say, disciplined a lot for being that. Because the belief back then in the, in, the, in the school I went to was if you were left-handed, that was the instrument of the devil. And that left hand was not going to be used. They would take off my necktie during class and tie it behind my back. 
and and then they would beat my hand because I couldn't write legibly with my right hand. So that made a sense. These were the nuns, by the way, the sisters St. Joseph. And I can I can relate to Ted Nugent saying I think he it was taught by the Sacred Sisters of Misery or something like that, and it was uh, very similar. But you know I endured all that abuse by the nuns physically. I can't I can't compare myself, not even close to what the people like in the keepers were subjected to, not even close. But you know the Catholic culture, I totally understand it. It was it was really brutal at times, and there were one instance when. I was walking to school and I was so terrified that I, w- I didn't study for a math test. And I was only in like the fifth grade. So I turned around, it was, it was snowing out and I turned around and told my friends I forgot my book and I went back to my house and it was locked up, everyone was at work. So I huddled behind the garage in a snowstorm. And luckily my mom got home from work early that day. And she saw my footprints and she's like, we went behind the garage and she went back there and there I was crying, terrified. And she asked me what was wrong. And I told her and the next day she said the next tomorrow we're going up to see her. And my mom was that type of woman who wasn't going to take it anymore. So she marched me up there to the, uh, to the mother superior's office, had me sit outside her office. She didn't make an appointment. My mom was a smoker. She had a smoke going, not going that day as we went into the school and it was ultimately her demise because she died of lung cancer a few years back. She was great, and I really miss her. But she whipped open the door to the mother superior's office, and she was sitting behind her desk. And my mom put both hands on her desk, leaned over, took the biggest drag of her cigarette, and blew it in Sister Superior's face and said, if you ever touch my son again, if you ever beat him for being a left hand, because his, his dad's a left hand, and left-hander and his his grandfather was left-handed and if you ever touch him again i'm sending his father up here and you're going to be hearing from our lawyer and she grabbed me by the hand and off we went after that it kind of died down again but after a few months it picked right back up again and to this day i'll still see a nun somewhere in town or whatever or at an airport and i get this nauseous feeling and like i start getting all these stress It's, it's unbelievable but, you know, like I said, it, it was it was a, a culture and that it was accepted. It was accepted almost by the parents, but not by my mom at that point. And then I moved on to Catholic high school taught by the Franciscan Friars. It was uh, a total male high school and they wore the ropes. And there was this one brother who was notorious. He had a three inch bolt at the end of his rope. And if you were taking a test and you glanced aside for some reason, not necessarily to see your neighbor's answers, but, and he saw you, that bolt was going to whack you upside the head and you were going to be bleeding. And many kids let out <laughs> during class and got blood stains all over their chest. It was unbelievable. It was quite the, quite the experience, the discipline. And one gentleman gave one of the brothers lip one day, one of the students asked him to see him in the coat room. And you heard lockers smashing and he came out with a bloody nose, bloody lip, and a black eye. And nothing was said. He just sat down in his seat and went about his day. It was it was incredible. And, you know, I still, my wife can tell you, like, I can still, like, get a little uh, emotional when I talk about it. It's just, and that was way back in 1960, you know, from, I went to grade school from 
65 to, you know, into the early 70s and then high school. And, uh, you know, I got out, I went to college and uh, off I went, didn't like it, it wasn't for me. And so I joined the United States Navy. I did six years of active duty, saw the world. I was in um, the Sixth Fleet, USS Nimitz Battle Group. I went overseas to the Indian Ocean, the Mediterranean, the Persian Gulf area of operations. In one particular deployment, we were over there for seven months and we were on our way back home and they said, oh, well, we have to be diverted to a little island called Grenada and we're going to be heading down there. And so we took part in that operation down. I don't know if you guys remember that, but it was back in the 80s. Mike, I do. I'm way older. I'm older than everybody else in the world. And I went to Catholic school, too, for grade school, and I can vouch for some of what you said. I remember, remember the rollers with the metal edge? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That metal edge was used on a lot of knuckles. I know that. Oh, sure. And, you know, I'd go to the chalkboard also to bring this. I forgot to mention this, but, you know, I was left-handed again. But they would take my hand with a piece of chalk in it and just continuously beat it against the slate chalkboard. Continuously. And then, you know, there were there was this girl in my class and she raised her hand to go to the ladies room and we were doing a test and they said, no, you can't get up. So you're done with the test. And she literally urinated in her chair. and They made her sit there for 45 minutes in it. Didn't let her go. And in numerous instances like that, it was just it was heartbreaking. You know, when you think back on it, you know, as a, as a kid, you were terrified. But as an adult now, you're like. My gosh, I can't believe I survived that. <laughs> I guess that explains why you went went into behavior detection, huh? Yeah. You know what's coming. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I, I got out of the Navy and I started my own business. Uh, I did finish carpentry. It, I did pretty well. And then when the uh, downturn of the economy came in 2008, I needed to uh, find a job with benefits because I really couldn't afford it anymore. And this kind of coincided with 9-11. So I was like, I want to do, I'm too old to go back in the military, but I want to do something, you know, to help my country, kind of protect my country. So I saw an ad for an entry-level position for the federal government in this certain agency. So I applied. I had my, my, I was honorably discharged veteran. I don't know if you know, when you apply for federal jobs, if you did prior military service, you get a preference. So if you have to take a test, you get five points above everyone else. So if I got a 90 and another guy got a 90, I would be preferred because I have those five extra points. So, so I got accepted into this agency. It wasn't the behavior detection right away. I was working for a few years and then all of a sudden, and then not all of a sudden, but I applied for this position in the behavior detection analysis. So I applied to that. I, I was accepted. Uh, did the testing and all that and got sent away to train out in L.A. And then once I got my certification and all that and I did all the training, I went to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center as an evaluator for a new, for a new behavior detection program. They were going to uh, pilot. And I was down there for a while doing that. And then this, this program has evolved a lot. I mean, over the years, this new New things added, new subject matters answered, uh, added, but it's actually modeled and taken. I don't know, you probably know about how the Israelis do it. The Israelis are world 
renowned for their behavior detection. They're amazing. And they, this one gentleman brought it, worked with the Israelis for many years and, and took down, you know, learned their program and they brought it to the, he brought it to the U S and introduced it to the federal government. And they piloted the program actually in Boston. Boston was the first place they piloted the program. So it, it works. It's scientific based. It, it works. I've seen it. I've, Myself, I've caught, you know, people who are up to suspicious activity, everything including free terrorist activity to drugs to child pornography to all kinds of stuff. And just based on their behaviors, just watching and observing them and them getting to a threshold, that's when we pull them wherever we observe them at, wherever it may be a public venue, an airport, uh, a, a marathon of any public events, fireworks displays, stuff like that. So we'll find out and they'll be carrying bags with them sometimes and we'll find things in their bags and we can find these people just based on their behaviors and what they're up to. So it's pretty amazing. So it kind of spread to different agencies across the, um, across the country at that point. I also did some training in the Reed Institute of Interrogation and Interview. Um, really great, um, really great program that they go around the country and teach local, all local law enforcement about behavior uh, detection. And it was funny. We were in class. We went, we go to it to get refresher training, and the instructor, you know, saves us for last and says, um, "And you guys, all you law enforcement guys, probably don't know about these guys, but they're out there and." You can be in any public venue or any transportation venue, cruise ship terminals, subways, rail stations, and they're, they're observing you. They're watching you for any uh, indicators they can observe. And if you're showing signs of stress, fear, deception, they're going to pick it up. And these guys are my favorite guys. Out of all you guys, these guys are my favorite. So it's pretty it was pretty cool to hear that from this like world famous Reed Institute of uh, Interview Interrogation, and uh, I continue to do it to this day. Uh, I love what I do, and it really works. It's a great thing, and I can even use it on my wife Amy. Just the other day, I said, "I said, did you pay that electric bill?" And she was in the kitchen, and she wouldn't make eye contact with me. She's gazing <laughs> down, fidgeting with everything, and I'm like, "You didn't pay it, did you?" And she's like, "No, I didn't pay it." So I caught, <laughs> caught a red-handed being deceptive. So it's it's interesting. That is fascinating. I wish I was like 50 years younger and could go into that field. Oh my gosh. I would, that sounds, I mean, I never even knew that. I guess I knew that people were trained in that, but I never knew that it actually had a name, behavior detection. So, And you know, in the general public, really doesn't know about it. That's kind of why I don't want to mention the agency and everything. Um, It's a great, it's called another layer of security, basically, you know, that people are out there, especially at large public events, you know, where there's numerous people and, you know, if someone's up to no good, you know, wants to do something bad um, to a large number of people, you know, it's good to have those people in place watching for it. So Mike, we're going to have you use your education knowledge and experience because we would like to know what all information you you've learned by watching the interviews that are shared in the keepers so 
for listeners out there that are listening, we are going to give you timestamps so that you can watch the certain specific parts of the keepers that we're going to be discussing. So at those points in time, you're going to be able to pause the podcast if you would like to watch that before we discuss it. So Mike, let's go ahead and jump in and tell me about the first timestamp and what happens in that scene. I want to explain to the viewers what actually is the steps and what we look for and when we're interviewing people. So behavior detection analysis, there's over, over 100 indicators of stress, fear, and deception that we look for. Every person out there has a baseline. It's the way they act every day of their lives. You know, aside from being stressed out about, you know, going to a meeting or whatever that is, you know, your normal baseline, how you act. Uh, deviation, that's what we look for. We look for a deviation, that's a change, a change from a person's baseline. And they can show this through numerous ways. They can show it through microfacials. Microfacials are these small, you know, one to four second expressions on their face. They can show, you know, signs of contempt. They can show, like, I don't want to be talking to you. You know, I don't, sadness. They can show guilt. They can show deception. There's all types of uh, microfacials, and they're very hard to spot because they're really quick. Some of them are easy to spot. It depends on the person if they keep it on their face long enough. Um, for instance, like, Surprise. You know, if someone looks surprised, the eyebrows go up, kind of the mouth opens a little, their eyes are wide. You know, that's, that's what a microfacial is. And these, these behaviors, these indicators that we look for, stress, fear, and deception, they can't be controlled. You can think you can, you can, can, I'm sorry, can control them, but you cannot. We call somewhere on your body, these are involuntary responses to these situations. Somewhere on your body, they're going to leak out. And in the, in, the, in the department, in the trade, we call it leakage. So leakage is going to come out somewhere. You can try to hold these in, but somewhere on your body, whether it's through your eyes, through your foot, through your feet, through your hands, anywhere, through your breathing, they're going to come out. And I can't stress enough how hard it is to spot some of them. But, you know, I've been, had the training. And it's, it's kind of easy for me now after so many years. I know people in your audience will probably question. There's probably going to be a lot of, I'm not a detective. I'm not an investigator. My job is to spot these indicators, to spot them and then move forward. And if it involves getting them involved with law enforcement or a detective investigator, then that'll progress that way. But my job is to get them to that point to find out their story, what they're up to. And I know there's going to be a lot of armchair uh, investigators out there saying, no, this because he's old, that's because he's nervous, you know. But trust me, I know what to look for, and I know what is like a given. Yeah, that's not, that's not relevant because he's not being asked a question. You know, I, I've done it, like I said, for a long time, and the government uses it because it works, and I know it does. So. Just wanted to explain that, you know, that's what we look for, and that basically a person's deviation from their normal behavior, their normal daily activity. You know, the human body cannot hide this stuff, cannot. And that, that's it, that explains it. That's pretty much what I do. So we can move on to episode one. It involves Jerry Koo. 
Jerry Kube at 1807, he motions his head no while saying it was the typical day at the retreat house. Verbal message does not match the physical gesture. That's one of the indicators that we look for. You can answer a yes question, but your head will be nodding no, or vice versa. You know, and he said that, so I caught that, him saying, so basically, your mind flipped. It's saying, no, it wasn't a typical day, but he's nodding no, and shaking his head no, and but saying it was typical, but he's saying something wasn't. I don't know what curtailed. I'm just telling you guys what I observed through him. That's a class, that's a sign of deception. That's one of our deception indicators. So the next one is at 1933 in the same episode, episode one. This isn't necessarily an indicator, but I wanted to, I kind of didn't understand. It's kind of a gray area too. I don't think anybody knows the answer, but I list, they listened to Sister Russell for 45 minutes to an hour. And I was just wondering, you know, what did they talk about for that long? We can move on to uh, Chanel at 39.58 on the episode, episode one, once we're still on episode one. Again, I mentioned this to, to uh, Gemma earlier, the way he shaked her hand, the rigid posture and very stiff way he was going about it. It says, you know, I don't want to get too close. I don't want to tell you anything. It's a sign. It's a standoff sign. I don't want to, I don't want you to be here is what he's saying with that type of body language, but I'll be cordial and shake your hand, but I don't, I'm very uncomfortable. I'm stressed out. I don't want to be asked any questions and just let's get this over with. But at 39.58, you can, you can see that. And Gemma, you said you were nervous, right? Um, n- not nervous, but I didn't know what I know about him now when I met him. But I, what I, I really didn't trust him from the beginning. His wife was hating every second of us being there. Oh, really? Like a bit- Oh, yeah, visibly. Like, she's not in the episode, but she was not a happy camper at all. I guess I was more trying to be, um, his comfort level was more important than mine because I knew why I was there. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Here's another one um, at 4054, and this, this one's pretty good. It's called Overly Specific Details. When he described the type of dump it was, like he went into way too much detail. It was a small, it wasn't a big dump. It was a place where you burn debris. It was a place where you dump household items. You know, there's no need to know all that information. It's just like it was a dump. That's all you had to say. And an overly specific response like that is another sign, an indicator of deception. He wants you to believe that, oh yeah, there's no big deal. It's just a dump, you know. Um, I can describe it for you because, you know, I know everything and I seem like the nice guy. So I'm going to explain what it looked like and I'm overly specific. So you're telling us too much information. <laughs> yeah. He's just trying to, he's trying to, well, when we, when someone's overly specific as opposed to lacking details, like he could say, oh yeah, it was just a dump. You know, well, what, what kind of dump? Then you ask those questions, but he just laid it all out where no one could ask questions. It was a small small dump, household debris, place where people burn stuff. Why do we need to know that? There's no need. So he's just trying to be deception to steer you away, like give you this long answer. So deception, class right there. Right. The other thing I can add that did not show up in the keepers 
is that when our director said to him, what do you think of all these young girls who were saying they were abused by the same priest? He said, I don't believe it. And our director, Ryan White, said, well, why would they all make up the same story? And he said, well, you know, he said, you know, teenagers, they like attention. The listeners or the viewers didn't see that when he just came out with, I mean, there were no maggots or anything. He was not asked about that. That came out of the blue. And we knew, we knew, we had seen the autopsy and I have a feeling he has too. So, um, but he made sure that that statement, well, there were no maggots or anything was on, you know, was on the record. So, and I'm thinking, why is he? That's volunteering. That's being overly specific again. Like we didn't like ask you that, but you volunteered. So another sign of deception. And at 41, oh, 41.23, he's doing what we call the self-soothing gesture. He's, he's holding his arm, kind of rubbing it gently. That indicates stress. He's being asked questions. I don't have exactly the question he was asked, but that's a timestamp. So you, you'll be able to see him doing that. And that's a, that's a stress indicator. He doesn't want to be there, so he's trying to calm himself by uh, doing a uh, calming gesture or self-soothing gesture. And that's one of those is uh, rubbing your arm like that or grabbing on. It's kind of a, kind of a half um, arms across your chest type thing. He's just got the one arm over and he's kind of rubbing his arm. Textbook, again, you know, stress indicator. So he didn't want he didn't want to be asking these questions. So he's basically just calming himself down. That's a great catch, Mike. So what you're saying is him rubbing his arm was that just because he was uncomfortable with the questions being asked? Is is that what your opinion is? Exactly. So this next one, and I, I hate to say excited because no disrespect to anyone or any of the survivors of these people, their family members or anything, but this one, this one was kind of blew my mind when I saw it. And it's, and it's, I, I hate to use the word a lot, but textbook, because it is, it's called memory reanimation. What memory reanimation is, is when you're telling about a crime that was committed, you're actually acting it out. You're telling it like another person did it, but you're making the motions that you were part of this crime. So when Scannell and let me just read, let me just reference this out of one of our books we have. And it's, uh, the interrogator should be sure to keep an eye on the subject's hands when he begins to describe a crime, the crime or the crime scene, his alibi or an alibi, location. Some, sub, some subjects at this point subconsciously demonstrate visual information with their hands. The, the interviewer should not be surprised to see a subject inadvertently reenact what he did with a weapon or action during the commission of a crime. The interviewer may see this subject reenact the drawing of a gun, the stabbing with a knife, choking, at, choking actions with the hands and other behaviors. So what Scannell did when he's sitting in that SUV, he was talking about the condition of the body and all that, uh, and that she had been there for a while. But what he did is he made the motion he made the motion of stripping down her top. He made that motion. You can see his hands go up and like he did. It. So my belief, 
my opinion, I believe that Ganell was probably helped to stage this crime scene after they moved it or the first time. I don't know. But he made that motion, and it's, it's classic memory reanimation. He didn't know he was doing it. He was telling it, and he just made the motion. And if you watch that at 4227, it's one of the best indicators of Scannell's involvement, I think, in my opinion, of what he did, how he was involved in it. It's involuntary. You can't, you can't help it. Your body just does it. it. It reanimates the whole thing in your head. People, people have seen people being interviewed or interrogated, making a stabbing motion, like the book says, choking motions, punching someone. You know, they're not saying they did it, but their subconscious is letting you know they had either did it or had a pot in it. So that was pretty amazing to, uh, to uh, observe that, pick that one up. Mike, with, with you picking that up from him reenacting, would you theorize that maybe he had some involvement in, in positioning her there? Oh, oh, yes, absolutely. And again, I have to keep saying this, it's my opinion, but him doing that and all the other indicators I picked up on, um, you know, there's a couple more as we'll be wrapping up episode one soon, but there's a couple more, but absolutely. I think he knew whether he helped stage Kathy after they, after the first time when Maskell brought Jean there or, or the second time when they actually left her at the dump, I believe that they wanted it to look like she was sexually assaulted. So they pulled her top down and whatever, pulled her skirt up or whatever they did. Um, that's what I believe. Because it's it's just, you know, memory reanimation. It's just right there. You know, and I believe he definitely had a pot in it because he he knew Maskell. He was his buddy, and he was probably one of his uh, cleanup guys, you know. And there's a couple more of them we have to get to, too. <laughs> yeah, my, and Mike, I just want to add really quick, hearing you talk about this, Gemma and I, we've discussed this case in detail many times. And I know for a fact that both of us have talked before about how Kathy's was found, Kathy was found with her top down. But now that you mentioned how he was making that movement, I've never seen this and I've never done it. But when, you know, when I talk about that, I never reenact it. So that was a very good catch of yours. And especially, you know, everybody talks with their hands, you know, um, my mom was Italian and used to have to duck out of her way when she was telling a story. You know, her hands will be flying everywhere. But when you're when you're talking about something like this, and he he's very rigid, Janelle, he's very he's a I would say he's borderline sociopath, this guy. He doesn't really show too much emotion. He's very rigid. He's got this this dead look in his eye. I don't know if you what I noticed when the camera just about cut out, he was in the window of the SUV. And he had this look in his eye like it was just, I was just going to say plain evil. It was just plain evil look. And it was like a dead look. He had like a dead pool in his eyes, you know. Just like, yeah, I can't even explain it. It, kind of send a sh- it can send a shiver through your spine, that look. But my opinion, absolutely. And he was the cop. He knew how to do it. He knew how, what they would, if other investigators were going to look around, he knew how to do it, what they would be looking for. And so I think he helped stage Kathy's body. Absolutely. Don't know if he was 
exactly involved in the, the action of killing her. But yeah. I want to watch the whole, all seven episodes now, right this minute. So, <laughs> I mean, I've seen the whole thing probably, I don't know, a dozen times and I'm, I must've missed an awful lot now that I know what I'm looking for. Other, the other thing that a lot of people don't understand is that he was a lieutenant and they did not typically work, work on Saturdays and they did, they did a rotation and it just like, there were a whole bunch of guys that could have been working that day but he was the one that just happened to be working that day so and it's funny because he kind of and you know i don't know how you know there's a lot of editing obviously and a lot of these behaviors men manifest themselves when you're being asked a question so a lot of the a lot of these videos were probably cut for time obviously so i'm sure there were a lot more indicators that were laid on the uh editing floor so oh, it would have been great to have seen the whole thing, but obviously you won't be able to do that. But I'm sure there were a lot more, a lot, a lot more indicators to observe. 700 hours, Mike. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure there were many. 700 hours filmed and had to be whittled down to seven hours. Wow. That's, that's a lot. So. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, in, in that same, that same timestamp with Scannell when I'm about the reanimation, you know, he, he mentions the condition of the body and he says, well, the condition of the body indicated that she was there for a while. And then later on, he says she hadn't deteriorated or anything and there were no maggots. Mm-hmm. If she was there for a while. I would assume that deterioration had started, right? Mm-hmm. She was there for a while, as he said, but you know, it kind of contradicts itself. Like, how do you, what are you saying? You know, I don't, I don't get that part. He like goes back on his words basically. And all right. So you had so many other questions about that one. We can move to 4450 um, episode one. Still another thing. Now this is another pretty good one. He uses the word truthful as he's talking truthful. You know, that's, that's an indicator that we look for when trying, when trying to be too good. You know, they're saying truthfully, and the other ones are like, I swear on a stack of Bibles, you know, on my mother's grave, stuff like that. On my children, I swear I didn't do it. And he's saying truthful, that's just another indicator saying, I want you guys to know that I'm telling the truth because I'm stressing that I'm being truthful. And that's another one. It's called a denial flag. They call them denial flags. And uh, when people use those words or phrases, they're just like trying to convince you, hey, I didn't do it because I'm being truthful. I'm being truthful to you guys. I swear on a stack of Bible. So he, he used that one, which is a very strong link to deception. Very strong. Those uh, denial flags. And so that, that moved on to 4452, which he gives evasive, vague answers, inconsistent, like he said, you were talking to him and he said, you said, could you ask anyone at the police station? He says, they wouldn't know me, but the people would. What does that mean? So it's a vague, very vague, and it's a non-answer too. So it's all three of them in one, actually. So it's called a behavior cluster. So he's, that, that was just a lie. He probably knows people that could have helped you, but he didn't want to. They didn't know me, but the people would know me. What people? <laughs> I don't get it. That was like puzzling that one. 
No. Even when you offered to give him a crab cake, he still didn't go for it. I know. Go figure. So any questions about any of those? I'm just so intrigued. This is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And it is like there's even better ones coming. I'll just tell you that right now. From this point forward, Mike will be referring to timestamps in episode two. So at 4813, um, it's an instance with Koob. Again, this is one of Koob's weaknesses he uses a lot is his verbal verbal message doesn't match the physical gesture. Again, he uses this, which again is another sign of deception. He states, we were soulmates as his head motions no. That's what, that's what he quoted at that timestamp, 4813. Don't have the whole conversation, but when he says, oh, we were soulmates, his head saying, no, we weren't. But his verbal message is saying, oh, yeah, we were. So another sign of deception right there, one of the, one of the biggest ones, your mind saying, say this, but your subconscious is saying this other thing. So it's saying, no, we weren't soulmates, but my voice is saying, yeah, we were. Again, Coop. I think these are all 4834 timestamp. This one was difficult to call. You have to really watch his hands. So I'm going to assume this is what he did because I could see his fingertips and the motion of his hands coming together. It's called steepling. You basically put your fingers together and like move them around, make like a TT shape, like a church steeple. That's why we call it steepling. Steepling of the hands. He's attempting that he's showing that he's open. Like, I'm telling you guys the truth. I want to be cooperative. But actually, it's a sign of deception as he's trying to show, well, I'm telling you guys the truth, but I'm, I'm more superior than you. I'm telling you what I'm telling you is fact. So, yeah, he's trying to be superior in this, in this conversation. He's trying to be, this is what this gesture signals. Like, I'm telling you, being open, but this is fact. This is what I'm telling you is the truth. So he's steepling his hands. You can just see it at the bottom of the, of, the, of the clip, but you have to really watch for it because you can see his fingers coming together. At 49, he's crossing his arms, touching his face, hovering in his mouth when speaking, and gazing upward. It's called a behavioral cluster, and it's all stress indicators. Every one of those I just mentioned, stress indicator. And that, when you get a cluster like that, that is when you really have to look at, a, look at this guy and what he's talking about, because he's obviously under major stress. He's obviously trying to hide it, but again, he's leaking from every part of his body, and he can't take it. And with Koob, he doesn't show anything. But this time, and his verbal message things, but he's pretty stoic. He's pretty, like, upright and most of the time. And he shows nothing in his facial expressions, microfacials, nothing. He's pretty, he's pretty stone-faced, but he's, he's flipped a few times. So that's what I observed at that point. At 49.52, again, he's got his arms crossed, which is a soothing motion because he's stressed. He's covering his mouth when speaking. Fast eye blink rate. Let's talk about that. When he asked Kathy to be his wife and she said no, watch his eyes. They blink really fast, followed by a normal rate. So that's a stress indicator for him. That's a sore spot for him. Like he's actually stressed out about it. And it could be actually fast eye blink rate is what we call a double dipper. A double dipper is it can be a stress rate, a stress factor, and a deception factor. So it's a double, double dipper. There's 13 of them that do that. 
13 indicators that we call double dippers. It depends on the situation. So I believe he's stressed and, you know, he's very standoffish about this whole, this whole subject about asking Kathy to marry him. And she, you know, refused. Do you guys have any questions about that? You were mentioning how in most of the things that you pick up from Jerry Coob, they were stress indicators. Now with your experience, could someone be expressing those things when they're recounting a tragedy of some kind? Uh, yes, absolutely. But you have to, you have to take into the, into consideration what, what the situation is. I mean, he's one-on-one -on -one with an interviewer. So yeah, they can be, they can be indicators that, well, he's upset about this or he's, but it's still, See, what we say, you can't resolve an indicator by saying, oh, he went through trauma or, or he went through this horrible situation. You know, he, he loved this girl and, you know, she refused to marry him. But you can't, you can't resolve it because you have to dig deeper to find out what's going on. So I, one of our cardinal rules is do not resolve a behavior. You can resolve a behavior, say, if an old gentleman walks up to you and one of our indicators is trembling. And this gentleman obviously has some type of medical issue like Parkinson's. You can see it. You know, you can see the full body Parkinson's tremble. It's when somebody's talking to you and they're putting their hand up to their face and their, their hand is trembling, it's different. And you can see it. I mean, it might not be observed by a normal person, but someone who has been trained to watch it can know the difference. So to resolve a behavior, not necessarily a good thing just have to let it play out. Jerry Coob passed two polygraph tests. Um, and the, the guy that was with him, Peter McKeon, also took a polygraph and passed it. And they were given the polygraph tests on two different days. Um, so McKeon was not on the same day as Jerry. So I mean, to me, that's like kind of I'm not a cop, but that sounds like I'd question that because they were buddies. The other thing is, is if McKeon has kind of fallen off the radar because he's changed his number and doesn't answer the phone. He's elderly. Um, but as Marilyn, yeah, as Marilyn said in The Keepers, he sounded very scripted and he told like the whole story from beginning to end. Now, is it possible for people who who are sociopaths or psychopaths to take, to pass a polygraph? Yes, I believe they are. And also, let me point out that they took them, what year was it? Um, six, 1969. Okay, 69. So I, I don't put much trust in polys back then. I mean, I'm sure they work to a point, but I, I wouldn't, even today, I don't even trust polys because uh, just for an example, a friend of mine, Straight up guy, never been in trouble in his life. He worked with us, you know, because you can't, you can't be in trouble. You can't have any kind of record or anything, you know, to get these positions in the, in the government. You know, they t totally investigate you. There's like a thing, it's like 86 pages you have to do in background. So this guy was stand up and to get, I think he was going for some position in the customs and border protection or whatever it was. He failed the polygraph. And this was like two years ago. I'm like, what do you mean you failed? He says, I failed the polygraph. I'm like, what? But you're like the most honest guy, ex-Marine, you know, honorably discharged, family guy. No, he failed it. 
So I don't, I don't put much trust in polygraphs to tell you the truth. Um, and also what you mentioned that they, they did it on different days and they were friends. If you rehearse stories and possible answers with each other, you're going to be a lot calmer when you take a poly because you know your buddy's going to say the same thing. And they probably went over all types of scenarios. And if the police were involved, uh, hello, you know, if they're, they're administering the polygraph. And like, for example, Kathy's car was processed at the same district station where Scannell was lieutenant and all his cop buddies who we've been told were, you know, involved in abuse all worked. So that's where they took the car to be processed. And it was processed as a missing person case, not a homicide. Yeah, it was it's funny. Amy was like, where is that cop talked on the keep? I'm like, it's probably in the police, like, inspection bay. Yeah, it's like the, the fog calling the kettle black. Yeah, we'll give you the poly, and uh, you guys pass. Okay, you're good. I think episode three, actually, there was nothing. So, Mike, what you're saying is during episode two and three, at any point where you saw survivors talking about their experiences, we don't have timestamps for those because in your opinion, it seemed like everyone did not show signs of deception. Yeah. 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 So there was no, I mean, people will say, well, did any of the victims show any indicators? And actually I watched a lot of the victims talking and stuff and they really didn't. They really, because they're being honest. There's no reason they're stressed out. You know, they're telling their story. They might get emotional or something, but that's not anything we look at. You know, but yeah, so when someone's being truthful like that and they're telling their experience, they're not going to show any indicators. Like I said, they might get emotional. They might get a little stressed, but you know why, because they're telling you their story. And that's what we, we want to get out of people, their story. But when they're being deceptive, they don't want to tell the story. They're going to show these signs of deception. No signs of deception, no fear, maybe some stress, because obviously it was a stressful experience for them, but no fear, no Nothing. I mean, we were just like, yeah, you know, I was told my wife was sitting there watching. I didn't get anything out of those episodes. So, yeah. 